Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis, and Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Circularity, Resource Efficiency and Waste here at Anthesis. If you joined us for previous episodes, you'll know that we're co-hosting a short series of podcasts which use informal conversations to explore the trends and opportunity in our sector through the lens of other women like us. We've been inviting women who've inspired us and shared our career journeys to join us in discussions and talk about the work and the passion that they have and hopefully provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. We're delighted to be joined by Neera Jory, Director of Global Diversity and Sustainability at Rich Products Corporation. Welcome, Neera. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Neera and I have been working together since we first met a couple of years ago at the GreenBiz conference in the US, and I've had some fantastic conversations, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you today, Neera, about your career journey and the pathway that you've taken through sustainability, and a little bit about that diversity and sustainability balance that you have in your job title. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be in the career that you're in today and your career pathway. Thanks, Debbie, and thanks, Claudia. I'm very excited to be with you today. My career has really been what I call a version of nomadic wandering. So there's been two sort of present themes across all of the work that I've done. One has always been a strategic lens and helping guide a large organizations from a strategy and roadmap and pathway to success perspective. The other piece has, has always been that power of the large organization. I've been drawn to, whether it's big brands or government entities, these organizations that have a really deep power to affect systemic change. My career has spanned a wide range of sectors and industries and geographies. So I started my career as a consultant uh, working on the marketing side, I had a chance to work in foreign policy in the Obama administration, and then about a little over a decade ago, found myself drawn to bringing together brands, public sector, uh, nonprofits, all of those actors that you need together to work on sustainability challenges, uh, to really think about impact uh, that those big brands could deliver. So it has led me to a place where I really firmly believe that corporations have a power and an obligation to do their part as we think about our sustainability challenges in the next decade and beyond. I think one of the most interesting jobs you can have is is a version of my job in a role where you can influence and change the sector that you work in. That sounds super interesting. And I think it's such a broad range in terms of your experience. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about what you're currently working on in the waste and also the packaging area. Yeah, absolutely. So Riches, for those of you that don't know, is a $4 billion, almost $5 billion corporation that works in the food manufacturing space. And we serve several channels, but primarily we work with in-store bakeries, and then we also work in the food service sector. And we're often the, the brand behind the brand. So if you're going to your local grocery store and you're buying a loaf of bread, it's very likely that a company like Riches has made it. And we also have some amazing iconic brands like Carvel Ice Cream Cakes or CPAC Seafood. So you'll find us, um, whether it's on your high street or in your main street bakery. I think one of our biggest components of the work that we do, we think about our ingredients, we think about the way we manufacture our food. And really what has accelerated for us in the last two years is the packaging in which that food comes in. And so we started to really see customer demand ramp up. And I think that came from many of the forces that were happening externally, whether it was the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's plastics packs, the the commitments made to the new plastics economy, 
whether it was customers and consumers waking up to the amount of plastic trash and waste being uh, put out there, and then also those longstanding forces that have always been looking at deforestation in our supply chain. So we really started to dig in a couple of years ago and look at the work that we were doing on packaging and how we might better meet and anticipate the needs of our customers for the future. My question listening to that is really, where are you driving the packaging and the waste side at the moment, having this position, the supply chain, which is a really interesting one because it's different between the brands and the face and the packaging we see and the actual production side and resourcing side as well for inputs and materials you're using in your production lines. Yeah, Claudia, that's a great question. And I think we're in a tough spot. We're not the packaging producer and we're not the brand that's ultimately accountable for it often. And so it puts us in a position where we really have to consider the forces that are coming at us from a customer market uh, regulatory legislation perspective. But then we also have to be reliant on the solutions that are coming from packaging companies or the people who are producing the packaging in the first instance. And I have to say, it's messy. It hasn't been perfect. um, And we're often caught in the middle of trying to figure out which way to go. What we've spent a lot of time doing is really assessing the market and understanding where those trends are turning into actual commitments, where those commitments are turning into actual mandates or requirements. And I think there was for a long time, a lot of dialogue on single-use plastics and elimination of single-use plastics. And people sort of got into a scared space of, are we eliminating plastics? And what we found and what we've seen in the market is not an elimination of plastics, just to work to make plastics better. Plastics have a ton of utility, particularly in the food supply chain. They keep our products safe. They give them extended shelf life, which also helps sustainability and elimination of food waste. But what we want to do is try to find those plastics that are most recyclable, that best interact with the infrastructure in the current regions or places where our products are sold. And we also want to identify ways that we can eliminate harmful materials or chemicals that are in those packaging materials. Fantastic. And do you have any advice for these companies that are in the middle, how to maybe communicate or how to tackle all of these issues? Because I'm thinking, for example, the majority of the textile industry is exactly in this middle piece in the supply chain where they're getting told this is the design, this is what we sell, and this is what you please make. But on the other end, they're also the key waste producer, if you want, because they are making the actual product. So it would be really interesting to see any learnings, any advice from your journey so far. The key principle there is the accountability that we each have as part of the supply chain. It doesn't matter where you sit. We all have a role and a responsibility to do our part. And that looks different depending on where you sit in the supply chain. What is truly in our control at Rich Products is the the choices we make on the packaging that we buy and the commitments that we make to make that packaging better. And so we're not big enough to influence legislation. Uh, We're quite small as as a food player when it comes to that, but we belong to associations and organizations that are supporting movement, um, supporting Ellen MacArthur, supporting EPR legislation. And then we also are working to determine what our strategy and our time-bound commitments will be for the packaging that we purchase in the future. That all starts with understanding where you are, and that's some of the work that we've done with you all in the past to baseline our current portfolio. You have to know where you're starting to understand where you need to go and to determine those gaps to get to bright. So I think that huge piece of understand where you are, 
identify your areas where you can have the greatest influence and opportunity to control your portfolio and your packaging. I always say when you're moving mountains, stare at small stones, because the work begins with that one small stone that you're going to start and lift, and it'll help you build up that rock pile that you need to eventually move that mountain. I love that analogy. And actually, I mean, it is a really good way of describing what we've been doing with you, which is using that data to tell us the story. It's looking at your baseline and telling us where are the opportunities, where are the hotspots, where are the suppliers that you've got maybe more influence and scope with, who else might those suppliers be supplying who are also asking these sorts of questions. I think it's quite interesting that you talk about the responsibilities that are coming to you from both regulation and voluntary commitments, because as we see, particularly in the US at the moment, producer responsibility requirements are becoming more embedded, aren't they? So we've got now Maine, for example, is the the first of the US states to really embed a producer responsibility regime and we only expect that to grow and so again you know being ahead and having this data and having this understanding ahead of that regulation coming in as a result of the work you've been doing with your customer base and internally to understand how to respond to the new plastics economy and other voluntary commitments I think is going to put you and other parts of the supply chain in a really strong position when that regulation actually hits so that you you know where you are you know where your liabilities are and and you've already started that journey actually of of what we call options assessment looking at where you can make change and how you can implement that change fairly expediently yeah and i think that it's such an interesting and exciting time as a person who formerly worked in the public sector and on the policy side we as corporations often default to sustainability has to be led by the big corporates. You know, we're, we're the ones that can make the most change, but we can't do that without our partners in the policymaking sphere. And I think what's been really, really exciting, I mentioned I've been in sustainability for over a decade, but I think particularly even in the last five years, we've seen corporations and other actors really push our policymakers and legislation and regulatory efforts to be in lockstep with us, right? And in fact, the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Agreement. We saw corporations say, we're going to stay. We're, we're, we're not going to be deregulated just because our government has chosen to do so. And I think what's really exciting in the packaging space is the convergence of those public commitments has really created a strong alignment, which gives good directions. Too often in sustainability, we're chasing many different pathways, and it's hard to know which is the right one. So that aggregation of the market and some of the brands has been really, really helpful. And then what has, I think, also been really exciting to watch and to see is that legislative piece come along with that of brands saying, we are going to support legislation. We are going to support you regulating us to do better by the packaging that we put out to the marketplace. And we are going to build our strategies to accept the fees and the costs that come with that because that's a huge component of this. All of this will increase the cost to do business for us, uh, but we have to be accountable for that if we're putting this packaging out into the marketplace. So it's been a really wonderful shift to see people embrace the policy changes, the public commitments that come with all of this work. Absolutely. I think that's also what we have seen, that the strong demand pull from the market has made a huge difference to the sector I work in, the waste infrastructure and recycling space. 
there's really been a difference in the last 20 years where we were because the technology still have been developing over time, but suddenly having a real opening in the market and a real market demand where they're also directly talking to their customers and really have a direct collaborative relationship in terms of what ways do we need to process. And I really hope it also leads to maybe more collaborative regulations and policy making, which I think would always be more beneficial to do it in line with industry and have a joint goal, which not always has been the case in the past. And Neera, you said that you'd been in sustainability for 10 years. What sort of changes have you seen in that timeline? Oh boy, so many. <laughs> um, sustainability has been evolving so rapidly. And I, I think the one wonderful, wonderful shift that I've seen I went to grad school over a decade ago, and that was really when I pivoted my career into sustainability. And it was really hard to get a job in a corporate sustainability role back then. You really had to know somebody. You had to either be on an internal brand team and get promoted into that role. And I can't tell you the number of roles recently that I have shared on LinkedIn that have been sent to me by friends or others in my network. Sustainability jobs are booming, and it's such a wonderful reflection of the importance that people are putting on these roles and this function, um, sustainability sits in all different departments and different organizations, but to see that corporations, organizations, governments, cities are all saying sustainability matters. It's a priority for our, our organization or our enterprise, and we need experts and people who know how to do these roles. So that for me has been a really, really wonderful shift. I do think we've seen corporations particularly accelerate their commitment, their level of investment, and I really am also watching closely the investor space. I think with the investment sector, the issue at the moment is where to invest the money and how projects in the sustainability, packaging, recycling space match the risk reward profile. So the returns they're expecting to the risk of the project. And that is a really difficult stage where we are because we are just on the cusp of implementing some substantial recycling infrastructure, especially for plastics packaging, but also other wastes as well. And we are just on the cusp of the first generation of plants getting online and, and coming online to, to really gain the experience to run these efficiently, to increase yields, increase uh, viability, and also to enable us to have consistent product to be used in the industry to then feed back and get more plants up and running. But that is a very, very difficult space to be in because the impact funds, which are available in their loads at the moment, are more investing in early technologies with higher risk profiles. And the infrastructure funds, there's not enough actual physical infrastructure there for them to invest in. However, there are a number of funds that are very keen to get engaged and maybe extend their risk profile a bit, but they would love to have more of the waste management industry involved because at the moment we've got the technology guys, the project developers and the brands and the off-takers. But I think the waste management industry is slightly missing there, which is a complete turnaround from the more traditional setup. And you also have some really clever new concepts because those investors are, are clever guys and they're developing new concepts and new ideas, how they can help get this infrastructure off the ground by specializing, for example, investing in first plants with a different contracting profile and uh, investment profile to stay longer in the project. But that's really still, I think, where maybe the sustainable investment sector and the actual 
brands don't really directly talk or different parts of the industry. We've also seen it in big groups that the investment of big brands talk to these guys, but they're not talking back to their own packaging and technology development people and procurement and sourcing people. So there's a bit of internal connection as well. The nice thing is that it's moving, it's moving forward. And I think that's very similar to the diversity space. But maybe um, moving on to your experience in diversity, equity and inclusion, in particular around vulnerability, are you able to share a bit more about this with us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of parallels. When I was asked to take on the DEI piece and my role, I think there's so many similarities between the work that we do in the sustainability space and also in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And you see more and more convergence. We've always talked about protection of planet and people on the sustainability side. And you see many of those trends converge and carry over into the DEI side. And I think there's also a really important piece of resilience that's required in both sides of this work, right? The work is complex. There are so many unanswerable questions. There is not clear pathways and strategies on what we need to be doing and how fast we can make it all happen. And so I think that leads you always to a place of vulnerability and questioning. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right approach? Are we moving fast enough? And I've been surprised to hear recently from some senior people in my organization and also from other mentors that many of us feel a sense of imposter syndrome, right? Like, am I the right person to be leading this change? Do I have the skill set? Why was I picked to do this job? And I think you have to always reach deep of you were chosen for a reason, right? Uh, we don't usually get hired into these types of roles without some depth of expertise or knowledge. And I think that you also have to allow yourself to really be honest when you don't know, right? It's always okay. I always encourage my teams and the people around me to say, I don't know, but I'll find out, or I, I will look into that and come back to you. And I think that's something that we don't teach each other enough, that you are not always expected to have the answers because the answer may not be evident or available to you in that moment. So I think that vulnerability that we exercise in sustainability also carries very much into the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And one question I got is, do you think it's very female to think about imposter syndrome, kind of like maybe being a bit too modest and not believing in your capabilities? Or do you see that across your colleagues and management team? Yeah, you know, even as I was thinking about what we wanted to talk about today, I think a huge part of what I'm relearning as I lead diversity, equity, and inclusion is how much we stereotype ourselves and how much we stereotype along gender lines, right, of, okay, women are expected to be this way, or women should act this way, or women might be feeling imposter syndrome more. And I mentioned two senior colleagues in my organization that had talked to me about this, and they were both white men. And I think that it just goes to show you that it lives in many of us, not all of us. Hopefully um, you're, you're a lucky person who has never felt insecure or unsure of yourself. I would love to hear from you if you are doing that. But I think the world teaches us often to doubt ourselves, right? And because of the complexity of these challenges and, and issues that we're facing day to day, if you're not pausing, if you're not uncertain, I almost worry about the overconfidence that you might be putting in these issues because there are many, many brilliant people working against these topics and we haven't solved any of it yet, right? There's lots of things left to do. And so I think 
it should be a natural part that we all encounter. And I think what is important is not to be stalled out or defeated by it, but really to say, yeah, that's a healthy moment to pause, to just gut check what I'm doing, where I'm going, and let me now think about the paths of the future with maybe fresh eyes or a new perspective. I think it might also allow us to have this vulnerability because there's no one clear answer and there's not just one path to find a solution to that. I think the the counter to that that we also want to be mindful of is I'm a I'm a huge fan and proponent of pre-competitive collaboration, right? We don't have those solutions. We need to work with uh, our partners, our peers, uh, the experts, whether it's the scientists or the nonprofits or the NGOs. I think one thing I see a lot of uh, in the sustainability space that I find discouraging is there's a lot of competition when there doesn't need to be. And I think we need to also get comfortable recognizing that sometimes solutions exist. Um, I'm also a big proponent and fan of a term I called old innovation, not innovation. So the solutions that may be there, it just needs a spin on what already exists. And then so I often say to people, uh, money, of course, and investment and cost in a business are, of course, always primary considerations. Those aren't my primary constraints. My primary constraint is my time and my ability to absorb all of that and to interface with all of the actors that I need to do the job and to do the next steps right. And so I think a really important component is how can we help practitioners have central bodies or places where they can go, where we can aggregate those efforts through shared impact initiatives. That I think the work of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been exceptional in that regard of how much aggregation and collaboration they brought in and how in lockstep they are working with supplementary partners in the space. So I think that's just one thing I would encourage everyone is to say, if you're thinking about something, how can you make sure you're capturing those who are already working on it, uh, bring in those folks that have the expertise and partner and collaborate rather than trying to create new or create on your own. That's the value of some of what you were talking about in terms of industry collaboration and bringing together different parts of the supply chain with different people with different experience, different viewpoints, different learning that allows us to have that sort of full spectrum of thinking. And I think it's really difficult in sustainability sometimes to find that true path. And it's easy to doubt yourself because there are so many conflicting pieces of information. Sometimes it's because the science is applied differently. Sometimes it's because that science is still in its infancy and it's sort of not absolutely clear what it's telling us. But often it's also because there are conflicting views in how you should actually implement this. So we often talk about, is it always aligned to be able to meet your plastic reduction goals and your climate goals? And we've come across many instances, for example, where those two things can pull in different directions. And if you are new into the space or even have some experience, but maybe it's in one of those two areas of expertise, it can be quite difficult to work out which options you should take forward that will have that win-win scenario. So in my view, actually, having the confidence and the awareness that you've just described to bring in external parties to to invite that challenge is actually one of the great opportunities to deliver a better sustainability outcome from the result of all of those different capabilities and mindsets working together. Yeah, and scale is a real challenge. I work closely with uh, our ventures arm and also with our external innovation team. And we see an abundance of wonderful startups that are all trying to tackle circular economy, waste, climate technologies. I read something the other day that... um, Venture funding for climate tech has already exceeded, as of June of 2021, 
the previous funding from the last five years. And so you see this acceleration, you see people coming into this space, investing in this space, and yet we're still standing here without the solutions. And so I think that getting to scale is so fundamental for us because we're a mid-sized player, but we are a big enough company that we need scalable solutions from the gate. We can't wait and test for too long because we don't have that space in our own system. So I think the other uh, challenge that many of our businesses are facing is true space for innovation, breaking down our innovation barriers to really think big, to revolutionize the solutions that we have. We do need some help from our upstream partners in order to be able to do that, to have some solutions that are ready to go from the start. So it's a really delicate balance of waiting for solutions, spending time and energy on innovation, trying to bring those things to scale, and then doing all of this at the same cost and performance that we always expect to maintain the margins to be a productive business. And that's so important when you're talking about scale. So earlier on, you were saying about the scale of influence that you have and the size of your your spend effectively in the packaging space. And coming together with those other brands who increase that influence is so important because that's what's going to have the success in driving the ultimate change. More people asking for the same change as opposed to multiple people asking for multiple changes, which become uneconomic in terms of their implementation strategies. Absolutely. And I think one of the things is really to have short-term, medium and long-term strategies. And we might have to start with a third or second best in the beginning, but at least we are moving forward. Going back to your example of taking the first couple of stones to move the mountain. If we're talking about physical buildings, capacity, recycling infrastructure, that is a 25-year investment. And what can we do with what we have now? What is the next step in the next 10 years? And then what's the long term, maybe 2050, where we are truly circular economy, pushing the boundaries. The problem is we have the climate change, we have the urgency because we have really started too late. I think that is the conundrum we are all working in, in the decisive decade. But it leads me to a question, Claudia, that I wanted to ask, actually, by way of sort of rounding out, I wonder, Nira, can you give us any thoughts that you might share with early career professionals? So people who are following in your footsteps, maybe starting their careers now in the decisive decade with that sort of 2030 UN date looming over them. What would you advise to them in terms of what you've learned and what you think that they could do to continue the journey? There's so much I would go back and tell my 21-year-old self when I was starting out in my career. And I think something that I would tell myself if I could go back at the start of my career is really to say, be patient with yourself. Because the reality is, if you'd asked me 20 years ago what I would be doing today, I wouldn't have said leading corporate sustainability, right? I think the vision of what you think you want to be and where you end up evolves so much over time in each career path, each experience, each opportunity you have shapes and defines you in a different way and and can pivot that direction for you. And that is a parallel also to what Claudia just said about where we go with sustainability. You can't predict where we'll be in 10 years. You can't predict where you personally will be in 10 years. And so you have to keep a long-term system mindset, but also recognize that you have to be open to the opportunities that come to you and be willing to say yes more to things that feel unusual or hard or different because they can often be the most rewarding. And I think the other piece that I will, I feel a lot now, and I think the pandemic has really accelerated for many of us is 
I have never felt a trade-off between work and life. I've always felt that my job is a meaningful and joyful part of a successful life. And I think that somebody was talking about work-life balance and that terminology feels really obsolete, particularly in the way that we work and live nowadays. The other piece that I would advise young professionals or people starting out in their careers is maintain your priorities um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you only have one life to live and really leaning into those spaces that bring you the most joy, that bring you the most fulfillment, whether that's your family, your hobbies, your personal passions, your career will supplement and add to that. And there are ways to live your values and to work in this space, even if you aren't formally in a sustainability role. So I would say your personal priorities and your personal passions should always be at the foremost of your career decisions to create that joyful and meaningful life that you're looking for. One of the things I enjoy talking about with you, Nira, is that you are full of little words of wisdom that apply actually wherever you are in your career. The word patience is something I'm often found that people say I lack. Um, And I think that that's really important, actually. You're, You're absolutely right. We want to change things right now. And we're a little frustrated when we see the speed of change. But actually, when you take that opportunity to step back a little bit and look at what we have achieved in the decade that you've been working in sustainability. Claudia and I have been in it for somewhat longer. Actually, you can feel some real pride in that change. And so I hope that wherever people are in their career journey, actually, they can take some nuggets of advice that you've just given and use them. Unfortunately, while I would love to ask you lots of other things about your career pathway and the job that you're doing currently, we've reached the end of our podcast time now. So I just have to say thank you for joining us. It's been really interesting to talk to you and we wish you all the best with the next steps that we know that you're taking with Riches. Been really interested to see how those progress and it's great that you've been sort of leading the way in this and I know you're sharing with other businesses both upstream and downstream in your own supply chain but through events like Green Biz as well so I hope that there'll be other opportunities for you to share your experiences and inspire other organizations through the work that you're doing but thank you very much for taking the time to share that with us today. Thank you both the pleasure was mine. So to our listeners, if you have any comments or questions on anything that you've heard in this session or anything that you'd like us to cover in future sessions, please feel free to get in touch with us via the Anthesis Group website. Reach out to us or to Nira on LinkedIn if you want to know anything more about what we've been talking about today. But until our next session, thank you all for listening and goodbye. <music>